Greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, Baruch Hashem, Yahuwah, as we prepare for the Passover season that has come upon us. I hope that everybody is de-leavening their house. I'm talking the inside of this body temple. Baruch Hashem, Yahuwah, truly blessed to be here this season. What an amazing journey of discovery. What an amazing season it has been. I want to thank you all out there, our donors, our, the supporters that have been so generous with the stewardship of your tithes and offerings again. Thank you so much indeed. We are looking at Nahum, the nationalist, today. And we're going to actually dive into chapter 1. Last week, of course, was the introduction and overview. We didn't get a whole bunch of text, but I do like to set the stage so that we can understand what we're looking at in the prophetic landscape. But today, we are going to commence on Nahum, the nationalist, the burden of Nineveh, the scroll of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. El is jealous. And Yahweh revenges. Yahweh revenges and he is furious. Yahweh will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, but will not acquit the wicked. Yahuwah has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So today, as we delve into chapter 1, we're going to look at a few things that I want to pull out of the text for us to focus on. The first thing is 10, can we say 10, 10 profound truths that Nahum is going to expose to us. Ten profound truths that are going to affect our walk here today, thousands of years later. We're also going to look at some quantum physics. What? Yes, Nahum is speaking quantum physics, and we're going to look how quantum physics relates to our redemption and salvation today, and I think you're going to find that very, very interesting indeed. We're also going to look at mercy and truth, how mercy and truth must work together in perfect gospel harmony. And then we're also going to look at a very interesting subject that I like to delve into when I'm at home alone late at night and have done all my studies but just want to get into the obscure quantum tunneling. Yes, I did say that, quantum tunneling and void and chaos. Because people come to me and we have conversations and like, how come something so dreadful happened to me? Am I in sin? No. We live in a world that is moving more and more and more into chaos. There are pockets of chaos all over this world. And Yahuwah, as the prophet Job explains so perfectly, he is trying to control the chaos. But that is not his perfect will. We introduce chaos into the world by sin. And now Yahuwah is trying to control the chaos. But there's pockets of chaos that are bouncing all around. And if you follow Yahuwah's ways, your pockets of chaos will be limited in your life. But if you are a rebel against the ways of Yahuwah, then chaos will actually be attracted to you. So we're going to look at this principle. It's physics. It's called quantum tunneling. And we're going to jump into that. So this is just chapter one. And I haven't even finished. Finally, it's ultimately about preparing for me, for you, for Passover, isn't it? De-leavening my house. I'm not looking at you. I need to be looking at me. And if I'm looking at you, then that means I'm not looking at me. And that's exactly what Yahushua said. Clean out the inside of our own cups. Take the big planks out of our own eyes. That is what the de-leavening process is all about. This is chapter 1 of the prophet Nahum. So as we open up the book of Nahum, we're going to get the most comprehensive biblical witness to Yahuwah's person. 
Who is Yahuwah? What is his character and the testimony of his covenant of love and his patient mercy? And it comes really to us, it's found in what's called the 10 attributes of Yahuwah, found in Exodus Shemot chapter 34 verse 6. Yahuwah, Yahuwah Elohim, merciful, gracious, and long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, who extends mercy to thousands, forgiving the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, but he does visit that iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation. We find within that chapter the balance between mercy and justice. This is Yahweh's character spelled out to us. Now, the pictured prophecies of, nah- of Nahum are going to explain to us the fall of Nineveh. This is all about the fall of Nineveh. And Nahum's vision, what he sees is so realistic, I have to believe that he was an eyewitness to its actual events. Because it's so descriptive, it's so realistic as we get into the text. Now, understand... Nahum is an inspired poet, truly an inspired poet, and he is an inspired prophet who delivers, in my opinion and in the opinion of many, many scholars, the best, the most profound war poetry that mankind has ever penned. This is the most profound war poetry that has ever been penned. Historically, Nineveh was supposed to be an impregnable fortress. She was guarded by moats and waterways and towers and buttresses. And the pride of her strength was her waterways and her moats. But that very pride became her very, very downfall. The excavated ruins of Nineveh show marks of fire. And Assyria's ruler, Sinsharishkan, actually immolated himself. He torched himself. He set himself on fire. He was burnt to a crisp. And actually, the prophet Isaiah records this very immolation. Isaiah 30, verse 33. For Tophet is ordained of old, yea, for the ruler, the king, it is prepared. He hath made it deep and large. The pile thereof is fire and much wood. The breath of Yahuwah, like a stream of brimstone, doth kindle it. Yes, this is the historic account of Sin Sharishkun, who actually immolated himself. And the prophet Isaiah records it perfectly. So these opening verses of of Nahum, chapter 1, echo, if you look at the text, what does it echo? It echoes the book of the covenant encounter. What do we have? We have a jealous Elohim. We serve a jealous Elohim. And the Torah of first mention of the jealous Elohim is where? Because the weightier thing in Scripture is when something is mentioned first, the jealous Elohim, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, right in the midst, the throes of the book of the covenant, with the descriptive encounter that we see in our text also, in chapter 1 here, and in the book of the covenant is what? A whirlwind, a storm, Clouds. All of this is recounted at the giving of the book of the covenant. And it's recounted here in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 11. And ye came near and stood under the mountain. And the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven with darkness and clouds and thick darkness. So Yahweh is known to his own, isn't he? The world doesn't know him, but he is known to me. He is known to you. He is known to his own with a certainty and with a surety. And he, listen, he will protect you. He will protect his own, even as he manifests his eschatological defeat of all 
And I mean all means all that would challenge his sovereignty. And we live in a world where the politicians, the governments of this world, they are challenging Yahweh's sovereignty and he will manifest his wrath unto them. But he will protect his own in the midst of it whilst he was doing that because he knows his own. He knows his own. The psalmists, they capture the words of Nahum in a single verse. In a single verse. And once we fully develop the truth that is expressed in the Psalms, that is expressed in the Proverbs, you are going to see the profundity of this prophetic gospel. The profundity of it. Turn with me and see how the psalmists capture the book of Nahum in a single verse. This is brilliant. Psalm 85 verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Because this is the character. We're looking at the character of Yahuwah whose foundation is in Exodus 34 verse 6. It's called the 10 attributes of Yahuwah. We are finding that truly... Who is Yahuwah? He is the one that enables mercy and truth to kiss one another. The balancing scales. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalms 85 verse 10, the character of Yahuwah. Proverbs 16 verse 6, this again encapsulates the whole book of Nahum. By mercy and truth, iniquity is atoned for. Now, now listen, now follow me with this. This is a thought. And sometimes when somebody shares something very simple, it is of the most profound, right? Remember when we came to the understanding that we're to keep the Sabbath? It changes everything. Remember when we came to the understanding that there were 12 tribes of Israel that were scattered abroad and that Yahweh was going to gather them through the redemptive work of his son? That there's not like Jew and Gentile, but you're actually one in Mus. It changes everything. This is one of these things that is going to give you a paradigm shift. By mercy and truth, iniquity is atoned for. Who brings atonement? Finally. Yahusha the Malkizedek. So the Malkizedek cannot atone for you just in truth, can he? And he cannot atone for you just by grace and mercy. But it must be the perfect balance scales of what? Mercy and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of Yahuwah, that's how you're going to depart from wicked sin. If you have no fear of Yahweh, you're going to go back like a dog to its vomit. So here we have what the true redemptive work of Yahushua is. It's not a gospel of grace. And it's not a gospel of rabbinic Judaism. But it is a perfect balance of mercy and truth. Which then brings about the fear of Yahweh that allows you to cast away sin in your life. Now we're going to look at ten profound truths based upon this. Because... Having trouble with my microphone today. Some big-eared bandit must have been wearing this. Because sin is purged by mercy and truth, we are going to find ten profound truths that affect our faith walk today. Number one, mercy without justice is not truth. Now, I can share this with you, and I tell my children, we read the Word as a family twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, and I say this, what do I say, family? I say, I'm going to read the Word, let's drink down the Word, and let's not tip over a glass, please. Meaning, let's pay attention and let the words of Yahuwah or the interpretation of the words of Yahuwah in our setting impact us. Don't let the water spill on the floor. Mercy, number one, without justice is not truth. Number two, grace without Torah is not truth. Number three, mercy without truth 
is exactly why a grace alone New Testament message is not true and unable to set the sinner free from falling again and again into sin and the backslidden state. And number four, mercy without justice is to tell the lie that sin doesn't matter. Number five, grace without Torah is to tell the lie that sin doesn't matter. Number six, only when there is truth as well as mercy can we be cleansed from our sin. It's a bold statement. Number seven, only when there is Torah and grace working together cohesively in the Malkitzedic covenant of love can we be cleansed of our sin. Number eight, Yahweh's justice demands that sin must be punished. Number nine, Yahweh's mercy allows a substitute to take our place, to pay the penalty just deserved. And finally, number 10, the Malkitzedic reality is a legal transaction that took place when our high priest took our sins and gave us his righteousness. Romans 5.19, of course, cements everything that I've just said. By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Mercy and justice must kiss, and it all comes together in the Malkitzedic reality, which is a legal transaction for your life and my life. And that's what this ministry is all about, and people are getting it. It's a legal transaction, life for life. Mercy and justice must kiss for the gospel to manifest in your daily reality. Not to be something here, but something here that we walk out together. Now look at verse 3 and verse 8. Because we're going to look at the conjunction wa, the Hebrew letter wa here. And it's translated as and, or furthermore, or more simply, but. But. It's the Hebrew letter wa. It's a conjunction, and Nahum uses it in verse 3, your note, and in verse 8. It's the but, but, or the double war. What does this mean? Look at verse 3. But will not acquit the wicked. Look at verse 8. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place of Nineveh and darkness shall pursue his enemies. So the double war or the double but here reveals that part of Yahweh's goodness is the fact that he is an enemy to all of those who defy his sovereignty. In the first few verses, we read the words storms, clouds, the drying up of the sea, the drying up of the rivers. We read about withering flowers. Look at it. Melting hills and a burning earth. Now, if we look at the Hebrew word order of these phrases, we get serah, which is storm, anan, which is clouds. We get chareb, which means to dry up. We get amal, which means withering. We get mug, which means to melt. And we get nasar, which is a burning earth. And this is the Hebrew word. Or Remember, this is war poetry. This is descriptive war poetry. This now comes into what I look at as quantum physics. And Nahum knew what he was talking about before we were even talking about quantum physics. 
Now, some people are going to comprehend this and others, maybe not right now, but you'll go back, you'll study, you'll meditate, and I think you'll understand also. Because Yahweh is here, through the prophet Nahum, dis describing quantum physics, quantum physics, excuse me, where matter can go from one spot to another spot, this is the amazing thing, without moving through the intervening space. Matter can go from one spot to another spot without moving through the intervening space. We see it in the New Testament and we see throughout the Tanakh, in fact, but especially in the New Testament all the time. Now, understand this is a biblical truth. This is something that Yahuwah has done from the beginning. His prophets, his servants know about it. And now these satanic, luciferic demons that are the new world order, they are trying, and I'm going to use the word deliberately, conjure it up for their own wickedness in our generation. That's why you're seeing some weird stuff out there. The dying of the honeybees. You're seeing birds and animals and sea life, marine life, just like decimated and washed. What's going on? They're trying to replicate what Yahweh has spoken forth and his prophets and his servants understand, but they're going to bypass Yahweh, they think. They will not bow to his sovereignty, and he is withholding, storing up his wrath for this great outpouring that we are going to see. But don't be afraid, because he knows who his servants are. The prophet Nahum is addressing this right now, that we are seeing in this crazy tech world of quantum physics now manifest through these various heart programs through all of the chemtrails that they are doing it's because of what the words i'm about to share with you yahweh is describing quantum physics where like i said matter can go from one spot to another without moving through the intervening space this is actually a descriptive term called think about it it makes sense quantum tunneling it's called quantum tunneling. Yahuwah is showing us that as the bara, the creator, he alone can pursue evil until it disappears through quantum tunneling. And you're all like, what? Think about it. Yahuwah alone can pursue evil so it moves from one space to another without passing through the intervening space. Quantum tunneling. Now this is going to relate to our lives as believer. He alone can pursue evil until it disappears through quantum tunneling into the lifeless form of chaos, void, and nothingness until it's totally at end and Yahuwah's goodness alone remains in the space in between and that space in between is called Eretz, the earth, the earth. Now Philip, you may remember, was miraculously transported to Azatos. Now Azatos was a town that was 30 kilometers away and how was that done? through quantum tunneling. You read about it in Acts 8 verse 39. Still got a problem with the podium. We'll toss that over there. Do a little quantum tunneling on that. Now Enoch, we know, of course, he walked with Yahuwah and he entered then. What happened to Enoch? He entered into a quantum tunnel. That's what happened to Enoch. Genesis 5 verse 24. Hebrews 11 chapter 11 verse 5. Elijah entered the quantum tunnel. In fact, Elijah entered the quantum tunnel so many times that he got a reputation because of it. Did he not? Oh, there goes Elijah in his quantum tunnel again. He did. He was the Einstein and Dr. Spock of the Tanakh. He really was. He really was of the ancient world. Now, Obadiah the prophet, was so worried 
that Elijah would again enter the quantum tunnel, that he said, oh, I don't know where the spirit of Yahweh may carry you. When I leave you, well, I don't know where you're going to go. You go in one of those quantum tunnels again, 1 Kings 18, 12. Then like Enoch, Elijah entered that very quantum tunnel himself, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. So the prophets who stood by didn't realize that he'd entered the quantum tunnel, so they said thus, well, perhaps the spirit of Yahweh has picked him up and sent him down on some mountain or in some valley. Second Kings 2 verse 16. Now, it's interesting. In John chapter 6 verse 21, we actually witness quantum tunneling with Yahusha. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately... The boat reached the shore where they were heading. Quantum tunneling. This means that when Yahusha stepped into the boat, the boat and all its passengers were miraculously transported to the shore. They went from here to here without having to go through the intervening space. That's called a quantum tunnel. This would be consistent with the fact that some of the ancient world regarded Yahusha as the return of the prophet Elijah. He was getting a bit of a reputation. And by Yahusha stepping into the boat, it actually influenced the physical process. By Yahusha stepping into the boat, I'm going to tie this all together for our redemption, just in case you're wondering what on earth is he coming By Yahusha stepping into the boat, it actually altered the physical process. All that to say this. By Yahuwah observing evil, it actually influences the physical processes taking place. Yahuwah's observance actually changes reality. Yahuwah observance of something. And remember, he knows his own. So Yahuwah's observance of your life actually changes your reality. And the more that you get Yahuwah to observe your life because of your observance of him, the more your reality changes. I testify to that truth in my life continuously, continually. And by Yahusha stepping into that boat, it actually changed the physical process. It changed reality. It really did. When I met Yahusha, when I was a young man, because... Because Yahusha stood beside me, observing the evil in my life, it actually influenced the physical process. I actually had a physical metamorphosis. It changed reality. I physically changed. I physically changed. I got translated into a new reality, a new man. And if you don't believe me, I'll show you some old photographs of me. My eyes are a different color. The markings on my forehead and the lines on my face, they've disappeared. And I know you'll say, oh, you're a wrinkly old git. Well, that's just rude. No, I'm not. You think I'm a wrinkly old git now? You should have seen. My wife will test it. I have physically changed. Now, I wasn't shorter. That would be kind of cool, though, wouldn't it? Now, all of this, I mean, it's funny, but it's not. All of this can be explained through good and evil and what's called quantum entanglement. Now, quantum entanglement is where 
for instance, good and evil are associated in such a way that measuring the quantum state of good also places constraints on the measurement of the evil. Now, this is a paradox that only Yahuwah alone as creator solves. And Nahum the prophet, he understood this. Yahuwah's observance of evil actually changes the physical process. That's what happens when we get born again. He actually observes the evil in our life. And then because we allow him through his son to observe the evil in our life, it changes the physical process. We actually change. We move from one place to another without moving through the intervening space. That's the born-again experience, and the heathen does not comprehend it. The goats that come to our religious assemblies that are not born again, have not entered through the quantum tunnel, they cannot comprehend it. Eventually, they expose themselves with their deeds that it never happened to them. It's the born-again experience, and it's explained through what I'm trying to communicate. Nahum understood this. He understood the quantum physics of it thousands of years ago. It's called quantum entanglement. It's where good and evil are associated in such a way that measuring the quantum state of good also places constraints on the measurement of the evil. This is the paradox that man cannot solve. Yahuwah as bara, as creator, alone has solved it by his son. By his son. Nahum understood this thousands of years ago. It's a mind bomb. Now I'm going to settle down a little and we'll get back into the history of the text. Now, for over a hundred years, ever since the ascension of Tiglath-Pilzer, Oh, I fancy a Pilsner. That's not his name, though. It's actually Tiglath Pilsner III. It's a historical name, but it sounds like a golden Pilsner to me. But that's my upbringing, and I thought I had quantum tunneling and got over that stuff. But anyway, there's nothing wrong with a Pilsner once in a while, is there? Get back to the text, man, for crying out loud. But he actually had ascended to the Assyrian throne. Now, Judah had suffered terrible violence at this point. She had seen her ten tribal brothers deported. She had become the vassal to Assyrian might under Ahaz when she rebelled against the reign during King Hezekiah. Forty-six of her cities were destroyed under Sennacherib. And the only way she survived, the only way, was by stripping herself of treasure so that she could pay the heavy tribute that was levied against her. Judah was in her demise. Then finally, under Manasseh, she watched as the Assyrian gods were set up in her temple. That was the final mockery. And that's exactly what's happened to this country. The final mockery was the architecture and everything that they're doing in our cities with all of these obelisks and all of this occult, it's mockery. Washington, D.C. is mockery at the finest, at the finest. In the face of all of that, Judah must, must have really thought, wow, Yahweh, you are too slow to anger. How many of you think that? I have often thought that. I mean, not when it comes to me, but to other people, right? You are way too slow to anger. I'm glad you're slow to anger with me, but not that person for crying out loud. Get on it. Judah must have thought the same thing. Yahweh, you are way too slow to anger. So let's talk about that because this is what Nahum the prophet addresses. Slow to anger and the reality of the strong and the weak. It's always like that little mongrel. You know, that, that little mongrel. Its bark is always just yapping away. It's so much bigger than its bite. Always yapping, always threatening. Whilst the lion just seems to doze in the sunlight day. The lion is just quiet and seems to doze. And like the lion, great in his power, 
great in his splendor, great in his majesty, Yahusha. Yahusha waits patiently for us, doesn't he? He just waits. Yahuwah waits as we hear the constant yap of that mongrel Satan. Just yapping, 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 yapping. You're not good enough. You're a failure. You're this. Oh, you didn't do that. Or the condemning words of others that they manifest that demonic spirit of condemnation. Right? That yapping mongrel dog. It's the weak that cannot bear an insult. It's the weak that cannot bear an insult. And they immediately answer back. Immediately answer back. But it's the strong, the devout, the true followers of Yahuwah who wait to give an answer. They smile. They learn to shrug it off. We shrug off of our foes. We shrug off our foes. And we don't need to engage. We don't need to harm those that would use us and despise us and say wicked things about us. When we do the right things, by being silent, we are rewarded with a benediction. Whilst the weak who gave answer immediately find themselves entrenched in angst and unease. In the garden, Yahuwah promised that in the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die in that very day. But the lion. And he decided to take a cool walk in the garden before he leveled the sentence. Then once he actually leveled that sentence, look how slow he was to carry it out. Look how slow he was to carry it out. A literal day turns into a thousand years. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Yahuwah's hesitancy isn't because of his lack of power. Yahuwah's hesitancy isn't because of his lack of power, as the unbeliever would assert. No, his hesitancy is due to him being the keeper of wrath. He's the keeper of wrath. Second Peter 3.9 Yahuwah is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to you would, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And now we dive into the fourth verse of the prophet Nahum. He rebukes the sea, and he makes it dry, and he dries up the rivers. Bashan withers, and Carmel too. And the flowers... The flowers of Lebanon, they wither also. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned, burned at his presence. Yes, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before Yahuwah's indignation, and who can survive the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Yahuwah is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place of Nineveh. And the darkness shall pursue his enemies. Paul knew these words. He spoke them to the Romans. Look at Romans chapter 2 and verse 2. And we know that the judgment of Yahuwah it is according to truth against them that practices such things. And reckon thou this, O man, who escapest the judgment, them that practice such things and doest the same, that thou shall escape the judgment of Yahuwah? Or despisest thou the richness of his goodness and the forbearance and the long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of Yahuwah, when the lion sleepeth, in the sun, as that little mongrel is snapping away, condemning, 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 and lying, the lion sleeps. Not for a lack of power, but because he's looking for you and me to repent. It leadeth to repentance. 
But after thy hardness and impertinent heart, you treasure up for yourself wrath, just like Nineveh did, in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of our Yahuwah. It's coming. It's being stored up. But he knows his own. Look at verse 9 of Nahum chapter 1. What do you imagine against Yahuwah? He will make an utter, an utter end to it. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Verse 10. For while they were entangled as thorns. Remember this is war poetry. For while they were entangled as thorns. And while they was drunk as drunkards, they shall be devoured as fully dry stubble. There is none come out of you that imagines evil against Yahuwah, a wicked counselor. You see, no plans that Assyria makes, no defenses that she devises, no counsel she takes will turn aside the utter destruction that is apportioned for her from the Most High Elohim. She's a reprobate, according to the words of the Apostle Paul, to use his words, which I love, a reprobate. She is beyond redemption. There is nothing that she can do. We live in a world surrounded by reprobates. Though Assyria seemed dangerous like tangled thorns in the poetry that prick those that touch them, or like a drunk man that is swaggering and staggering towards you because he wants to go the knuckle. Assyria, nevertheless, will be burned. She's going to be burned up with the fire of Yahuwah's hot anger, like fully dry stubble consumed by a racing flame. A racing flame. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 6, it is written, The sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron. Those thorns. You've got to be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. You have got to be fenced with iron so that you don't get pricked by the thorns. And there's a whole bunch of thorny, prickly things walking around out there. Iron up. Pride cometh before the fall. What a nosedive for the Assyrian nation. A nation who was once Yahweh's rod and staff. They were used as an instrument against his rebellious people in the past. But now Yahweh turns on them. See, you can be used for a time. But if you decide to depart, then Yahweh will actually turn on you. He will. Look what Isaiah tells us in the 10th chapter and the 5th verse about that great nation that Yahweh used as a rod and a staff, and then he turns against them. O Assyria, the rod of mine anger and the staff of their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now they find themselves on the receiving end of Yahweh's judgment. Why? Because they grew stout-hearted. They grew stout-hearted. And they took glory in high looks. Look at Isaiah chapter 10 verse 12. I will punish the fruit of the stout heart and the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he hath by the strength of my hand I have done it. That is what he saith. By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. You see, the moment 
any of us, yes, any of us forget that we are just simply an instrument, a tool in the hand of Yahweh, we're done. The moment we forget that. I mean, I have been shocked to see the fall of individuals that I've known over the years who got stout hearts and took glory of their high looks. It's terrifying to see how Yahweh then turns and levies judgment just like he did to the Assyrians. Whatever you accomplish, whatever I accomplish, know this. We are nothing. Nothing but an instrument in Yahweh's hand. I am fully aware that I am a transgressor. I am fully aware that I am a miscreant, that I should be in the village stocks and that cabbage should be thrown at me, which is why I've resided myself to be put in the village stocks of social media and have social media cabbage thrown at me. And I care little. I care little because I know where I came from. I care little for the threads of wickedness and the scripts of fools. Little. All of us must be turned toward Yahweh, our maker, and ever watchful of our condition, never to get ahead of Yahweh, to always remain a lowly tool in the hand of our creator. Isaiah 10 verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? I'm an axe. You're a saw. That's it. We're tools. Some of you are bigger tools than others. None of you got that, did you? That's an English joke. You tool. And my brothers, I grew up, my twin brothers in England. They say, well, Matthew, you're the biggest tool of them all. And on social media, they may agree. Verse 12. This says Yahuwah, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet they shall be cut down when he shall pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now will I break his yoke from off you, and it will burst your chains asunder. And Yahuwah has given a commandment concerning you, that no more of your name be sown. Out of the house of your Elohim will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will appoint your grave for you are vile. The final sin of nations and individuals is the sin of pride. Nahum is truly an urgent call to repentance, a call to condemn ourselves. It's a call to condemn ourselves for our pride and breaches of covenant before Yahuwah, to cast ourselves before the patient mercy of Yahusha, and to live in the refuge of his goodness. When people condemn others, it's a good reason to avoid them. A very good reason to avoid them. Because they have redirected their sin and transgression rather than condemning themselves. Please take a self-inventory. Verse 15, behold upon the mountains of the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes shalom. Are you publishing shalom? Are you publishing shalom? O Judah, observe your feasts, your moadim. Perform your vows for Belial shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, Belial means Satan 
wickedness, worthlessness, the power of death at work in this world. It's used by Paul, of course, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, Belial. But there's another word here that stands out. Betshin resh, basar, where we get the English word gospel from besorah. The gospel, the word gospel, it originates in the Tanakh from the Hebrew word bet shin resh, basar, besorah. Now in context then, what is the gospel? Well, look at verse 15. Because we always hear, oh, the gospel, let me give you the gospel. Jehovah's Witnesses standing out on the road. Let me give you the gospel. They're not giving you the gospel. It's another gospel. The true gospel in context in verse 15, the Bible is very clear that the true gospel message is it's shalom, which means wholeness, completeness, full spiritual and body health. In context, it's talking about how a nation that was divided, sick, lowly, and scattered would be made whole, gathered by the hand of the healer. In context, it's the gathering of the 12 tribes of Israel into the body of Messiah, the true Sar Shalom. Prince of Peace. It means wholeness in complete spiritual and body form. It is an ingathering together of all 12 tribes and it is inclusive of observing the feasts. It's inclusive, the gospel, of observing the feasts. It's not exclusive, but inclusive of it. As religion has misled us and said it's exclusive. No, it's not. This is the true definition of the gospel. It's inclusive of keeping the biblical feasts. When we lay down our dogma, our religion, and we pick up the word, it becomes apparent throughout the Bible the true gospel is the ingathering of all 12 tribes into Israel. James chapter 1 verse 1, I opened up the teaching, I open up every week with this, of course, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, greetings. Matthew chapter 2 verse 6, Yahusha will rule my people, Israel. Matthew 15 verse 24, of course, we all know it so well, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 19, verse 28, sitting upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the gospel in context is supposed to shine the light to the nations, to point them to graft into the glory of Israel, not create a separate religion and use the gospel to preach us another Yahusha whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Second Corinthians eleven four. Galatians one six warns us I Marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Messiah unto another gospel, which is not another, but there is some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Messiah. And Luke chapter 2, verse 32 a light to lighten the nations and the glory of thy people Israel. The gospel, Yahusha redeemed Israel. That's the gospel. Luke 24 verse 21. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. Galatians 6 verse 16. And as many as walk according to his rule, peace be upon them. See what's the gospel about? Shalom. Peace be upon them and mercy, the balance between mercy and truth, and upon the Israel of Yahuwah. Ephesians 2.12. And at that time, you were cut off. 
You were strangers. You were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the beautiful Malkitzedic covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without Yahuwah in this sick and twisted world. And that's a dangerous place to be. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 8. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So this truly is good news that the Nahum the prophet capitalizes on. It's the gospel. So to say another gospel devoid of the words of the prophet truly is making up your own religion, doctrines, and dogma. It's truly good news when we understand its biblical context. And to me, there is no better chapter for us to prepare for the Passover. This is about a self-inventory, is it not? This is about looking inside. Deleavening our house, our body, our spirit, our mind, our thoughts, the way we view the world, the way we view others. What are we publishing? What are we writing? What are we talking about? Are we talking about peace? Are we balancing mercy and truth? Or are we just like the world, so quick to judge and to jump on a nitpick? Are we? Then we're no better than the world. As we prepare for the Passover, I'm going to go home. I'm going to be with my family tomorrow on Yom Echad. And we're all going to do a self-inventory. Instead of looking at the failings of other sinners, we're all dreadful sinners. All of us. Dreadful. Utterly dreadful sinners. Focus on your problems. Because I'm going to focus on my problems. And I'm going to pray that my fellow sinners will have the fortitude of faith to look inward and focus on his problems. Then maybe we'll actually be that witness of the gospel that we're supposed to be instead of a religious repellent. Because that's what a bunch of people are. Just religious repellents. Because people aren't seeing the spirit of Yahuwah in their lives. They're seeing the nitpicking and the quick condemnation. But it is the Ruach, the spirit that draws. And people are looking for that witness of truth and spirit. That is the gospel message. Nahum is delivering it and saying that Yahuwah knows his people. And his people should manifest such things. Should they not? They should. Especially as we prepare to gather in all 12 tribes to the feast of Passover. We are meeting here in Oregon. And people have traveled in from out of state. People are traveling in from all over the nation. And also there are many, many others out there that cannot travel in as of yet. So we are hosting a wonderful Zoom platform global worldwide where people can get together and they can celebrate the Passover and have fellowship. You can find all about that on our Facebook page, a Zoom platform on the Passover with a wonderful Passover celebration and PowerPoint and teaching and prayer and meal. So wherever you are out there, whether it's here in Oregon that you're coming to gather for the feast or whether you're in the nation scattered, you can feel at home with Torah to the tribes as we be that ministry that helps gather in the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And as for me and my house, we're going to publish Shalom. So Shabbat Shalom to you all. Amen. Blessings. Do we have any questions or cabbage? Questions? Is, 
Is Israel considered the same as the Hebrews, those that have crossed over and live out the gospel? Yes. So a Hebrew, chavah, means one that has crossed over from one soil to a better soil to produce better fruit. And then Israel is the manifestation of that fruit, one who struggles with Elohim and prevails. So it is crossing over, coming out of the world, mystery Babylon, planting yourself in a better soil, and then producing the fruit that you now have a life that struggles with Elohim, and you prevail as Israel. It's a full step bounty harvest, a hundredfold increase. Questions? Comments? Cabbage. Where is Ephraim in the 144,000? Of course, the sons of Joseph. The house of Joseph is coming home. And that's what we see throughout the prophecies. So that includes Ephraim and Manasseh and the stranger, the alien, those space invaders that are going to graft into Israel too. That's the only questions we've got Keep your cabbage to yourself, and I'll see you, Yahuwah willing, next Shabbat. Amen?